Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. As always, two people putting on this show. This is Chris. And this is John. You know, sometimes I think I say this a little bit too much, but really just appreciate everyone out there listening and enjoying the show. We had a first happen to us. Jake, an awesome listener, sent us a card, a handwritten card, which I didn't even know people do that anymore. But now I see why there's such impact. It was really cool. Just saying thanks for sending him a book. He's a young entrepreneur and we inspire him. And that's awesome. That's what we want to know that it's value going out to the world. So we thank you guys for being part and helping us create this community. Speaking of awesome things being sent in the mail, well, this one was sent via email, but our guest this week puts out a newsletter called Summer of Design, where he helps walk through his book and talk to people about design. It's awesome. Chris, do you want to mention anything about who this secretive guest is? Yeah, this week we talked to David Cadavy. His name is actually harder to pronounce than you imagine, but he wrote a book called Design for Hackers, Reverse Engineering Beauty. And John found him, obviously, because this is John's type of thing. You were like complete nerd, and I had no idea what was going on for some of it. Well, you like Comic Sans, so <laughs> That's true. there's we do, that. We do talk about like what fonts to use. He actually has a really cool thing. Yeah, there you go. You're going to offend a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you like design though, that's the cool thing. Design, he means everything. Like all the, everything you use was designed. And I don't know. It is cool when you think of that. Somebody has to go through all of the processes and how it would work and how you interact with it. Oh, there's a lot of stuff that goes into design. I was looking at some typography stuff and they were showing how two fonts differ from each other with like the curvature of the N being at an angle here and at one here. And it blows my mind that you care about that. Well, think about a lot of people how about much time people put into the creation yeah. of 
different fonts. Yeah. I mean, you think about people putting together blueprints for buildings, and you have to do the same thing for typography. No, it's definitely true. So we're going to turn it over to David here in a minute. David, as I said, he's an author. He writes about design, productivity, and entrepreneurship. He's got a great blog at cativee.net. He's written for Lifehacker. He's got a lot of great stuff and a lot of good things to share with the world, especially, as John mentioned, his online school of design that he's doing right now. Uh, But before that, this episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Have you ever wanted to start a blog or a website or even your own online business, but you didn't know where to get started? It seemed too intimidating. Well, I'm telling you, Squarespace lets anybody do this. It's an all-in-one platform that makes it super easy to create awesome professional websites without any hassle. Try it out for free and get 10% off your purchase by going to squarespace.com and type in the promo code SMART6. Everyone should have a personal website, and Squarespace makes web design a breeze. Everything is drag and drop, so you don't have to worry about coding. Squarespace takes care of hosting, SEO, and even makes sure your site automatically looks great on any device. Squarespace recently added e-commerce to their platform, so if you want to set up shop and sell things, you can do so in just a few minutes. If you happen to get stuck, Squarespace has an amazing 24-7 support team. We can't all be as tech savvy as John over here, but I'm telling you, even someone like me can do this. For as little as $8 a month, you can own your piece of the web. Head over to squarespace.com, support the show by using the promo code SMART6. So make sure you head over to cativee.net, check out some of the free stuff that he has over there to offer you. He has all kinds of cool things related to design and typography. So check that out and enjoy this week's episode with David Cativee. Get ready to nerd out. All right, David. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you today about your book and all that you're doing. Design for Hackers is the book started off at 18 on Amazon, you know, really doing awesome. And I don't know anything about design and almost nothing about computers or hacking. So it's pretty cool because I think I can ask the questions that people in similar situation would ask. So I guess the first thing I wanted to start off with is what is design that, you know, how do you define it as opposed to the way that the layman, such as me, would be like, oh, it's a certain type of fabric being used or something like that? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, the, the, you, I think you might have, you might have pulled an, an actual Steve Jobs quote, uh, the, the one about, uh, he's talking about design is not a veneer. It's not uh, the fabric on the curtains or on the sofa or something of it. It's, it's sort of a series. It comes from a series of layers of different factors that come together to shape any sort of artifact, and that's like the product's needs, the the goals that are in mind, the materials that are used, the cultural context. All these things come together really to create good design, and so that's the point of view that I try to approach design through, and that's the point of view that I try to expose the framework that I try to expose uh, in Design for Hackers. And when you talk about hackers, what does that mean? Because I always think of hackers as the people, you know, like, I don't know, bad guys getting into my computer and s- sitting stupid viruses that shut it down and make porn pop up and stuff like that. So, like, what? Yeah, what? sure. I mean, that's, the, that's like kind of the popular media, media perception. And, <laughs> and the name Design for Hackers actually came from a particular community, the hacker news community, that through which I even managed to, to get the book deal. In that community, it's kind of described as somebody who's uh, an entrepreneur that figures things out 
and does whatever it is they need to do to accomplish their goals. Now, a lot of times that is going to involve learning how to program and doing a lot of technology things. But it can be abstracted as more, more widely as kind of a behavioral point of view that uh, boredom and drudgery are evil. And if you want to accomplish something, that go ahead and figure it out yourself. So in doing this book and in the different things you do, when you're speaking towards design, does it encapsulate everything from products such as Steve Jobs and the Mac and all that iPod stuff and internet design, web design, all that stuff? Is it a, the whole spectrum? It is a pretty wide spectrum in the book. Uh, I use examples such as Impressionist painting or Renaissance sculpture, ancient Roman architecture, or the Parthenon or the, the Mona Lisa. And I explain design principles that are present in all of these sort of timeless pieces of design. And I abstract those principles and then try to explain how those principles are still present using today's technology. And so in that context, it does involve a bit of web design and mobile design, but it is also pretty abstract and can be used to understand all sorts of design. I do want to focus on, for most of the show, the the web design portion, as you know, most of our lives are spent looking at some electronic, you know, whether it be a pad or a pod or a Mac or whatever. And so that's very important. But I also know you kind of talk about in your book something like why Target has red shopping carts or things like that. And I was right. hoping you could delve into that because what that makes me concerned about is I become paranoid that, you you know, marketers are using this subliminal design to make me want things and do things and act a certain way. So I'm hoping mm-hmm. you can help me out with that. There's always somebody trying to, to persuade you in, in different ways. And design is one of the ways that can, you can be persuaded. Now, it can be a really powerful tool in that you can use design to express the values of your product or your company or whatever artifact you're creating and kind of communicate to people whether that is really for them. Uh, now, the Target shopping carts being red and, and, and using red in Target is just talking a lot about some of the psychology of the color red. Some of that stuff might be passed down from thousands of our ancestors and, and their experiences with the color red. So there are some pretty well-researched physiological responses to the color red that it might be helpful to be aware of. I, I don't think that it's it's going to uh, make you go spend your entire paycheck <laughs> at tar- Target, um, though they seem to be very effective at getting people to do that anyway. That's true. I guess that kind of leads into color theory. And as a non-design person, I don't know much about it, but we do work on our own blog. I want to start my own website of sorts. And so I do kind of want to learn about color theory and how to use colors properly in the context of design. With most of my advice is while I, I do abstract things a lot and, and try to break things down so you can understand it when, it, when it comes to any of the actionable stuff that I talk about, I'm definitely a big advocate of simplifying things. If you're just starting out, it behooves you to, to be simple with your color choices. You know, you can start with a white background is, is usually pretty effective. And um, picking one kind of main accent color and maybe using some grays is, is good. But then there's also a number of different color schemes that you can use that are arranged around the color wheel, such as the split complementary. I mean, you could you can Google something like that and, and find out more about it. But it, it's definitely helpful to have some sort of a, a dominant color, but also to be aware of some color conventions, such as that red is often used for 
things like errors and such. And, and um, green kind of has that uh, a go cultural context. And um, historically, links have been some, some shade of blue a lot of the times. So it's helpful to be aware of those things, but also when you're choosing your overall color scheme, keep it really simple. Make, you've got plenty of other decisions to, to worry about, so make those decisions uh, as simple as possible. I was talking to Chris beforehand, and you know we were mentioning everybody hates Comic Sans. It's the joke of the internet, all that kind of stuff. I don't hate it. I, I know John like literally hates it, but I, you know I think it could work. <laughs> no, if I if I walk into a restaurant or a store and they have any signage in Comic Sans, I'm like, you're walking out. I right? Can't, I can't take this. I'm out of here. I'm gone. Uh, Even I don't do that. But. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm I'm kidding. It's not to that extreme, but. I'll yeah. make a joke. Like if I'm at a restaurant with like my family and, you know, we get a menu and it's in Comic Sans, I'll look at my dad and be like, huh, I can't believe they put this in Comic Sans. It is those little things. I know, you know, Chris worried about being tricked into marketing stuff, but a lot of it's just trying to not push people away with ugly design. And, you know, you mentioned Steve Jobs and he talks about that all the time, where if you design beautiful products, people are going to want them regardless of the price. Yeah, and I think that's a good point uh, about trying to not steer people clear of you by having just really bad designers making poor design choices. And, and basically, it boils down to being able to communicate lucidly with visual language. And a lot of times people with comic stands, they're conveying the message, a message different from the message that they actually truly want to be conveying. And that's where, where things get tricky, where it gets helpful to make to simplify your decisions. Like I've got this PDF cheat sheet. It's called All the Fonts You'll Ever Need. That's available at designforhackers.com. And basically it's just 12 typefaces that if you were to just use those, you would be okay. Now that's not to say those are the only typefaces that are worth using at all. That's definitely not the case. But if you were to just pick one and just work with that, especially as a beginning designer, you would have so many other challenges to work with in communicating clearly. Things like alignment and, and white space and the, the scaling of your elements and, and really communicating with those, those subtle things that really make the difference between uh, a design that's clean and communicates really clearly and, and something that looks sloppy and all over the place. What type of things do you definitely not want to do when it comes to design? I mean, like you said, you don't want to drive people away. What are the things that might do exactly that? I guess it's hard for me to pop that into my head. Uh, the things that I, I think people do need to do, though, is get a clear picture of of what it is that their goals are for any particular design. What do they want people to do? And to make sure that visually, when they step back, those goals are are made clear and manifest themselves clearly in the design. So, you know, you just want to have like kind of one main call to action. And is that highlighted in that, you know, it's in an area that takes a lot of dominance in, in your visual field? Is there a kind of a clear hierarchy for like the secondary information and calls to action? Uh, I think being clear about what you want to accomplish with the, desi with the design is really important. And um, if you don't have a clear picture of, of how your business is working and how you uh, want things to turn out, then it's going to make it really difficult to, to have a design that communicates clearly. I just wanted to kind of to shift the focus here and, and talk about, you know, you wrote the book Design for Hackers, and then recently you put out a newsletter where people could sign up for your summer of design class. And I found this fascinating. Can you let our listeners know, just I guess summarize what your thought was with creating 
the summer of design and and what it is and what it will help them with. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, t- I'll tell you the whole story, really, which is uh, Design for Hackers has been out for about a year and a half now, and it's done pretty well. And it, it's almost like the idea is starting to mature and, and catch on. Uh, it did, did great to start off with, but then you know there's been a lot of just organic as it as it sits there, people picking it up and it getting coverage in in some major places. And um, I was doing this workout program. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called Insanity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's totally crazy. There's basically this guy yells at you and you watch these videos. And I was doing this workout program. And it's not really my my style so much to, to do something like that. But I really got into it. And I realized like how nice it was to kind of have somebody telling me what to do and coaching me along. And there's this program like... I'm, you know, I just have to do this six days a week, and so I made a schedule and made sure I did all the, all the things that were going going on in in it, and it made me think like, you know, there's probably a lot of people who, either they have the book already and they, you know, haven't gotten around to reading all of it, or they want to learn more about design and they just don't know where to start. So. I thought, well, you know, I already have a whole book here, so I can just kind of write sort of summary emails of each chapter and get kind of community component to it, get everybody working together, which, by the way, the course is closed now. People can sign up on, for, on the wait list, but uh, part of it is that everybody's in it together, which was another important part of, of like the workout program that I did was that there were a lot of people on the screen who were also doing the same workout program, and I was doing it with a friend and stuff. And so I wanted to capture some of those motivational elements and, and put them together to, to make something that made it easier and more manageable for, for people to learn how to learn about design. And the response totally blew me away uh, as far as people signing up for that, that course. So I'm pleased with it. And we've sent out the first lesson and it, it's gone great so far. So looking forward to the rest of it. So you're just going to walk everybody week week by week for those 12 weeks through the aspects of design for hackers and principles to apply and like that kind of stuff. Is that the overall goal for it or? Yeah. Uh, I've designed the course so that, you know, somebody doesn't have to have a copy of design for hackers to get some value out of the course. I mean, obviously I wrote an entire book, which is much more than I can fit in emails. Right. But so, yeah, so I've just sort of summarized each chapter and, and I'm going week by week. And so by the end of it, hopefully all those people will just be at a whole other level as far as understanding design. And I'm, I'm not like a, I'm not really a quick and dirty tips type guy. I'm, I'm much more, uh, design is a very complex thing. I think a lot of the problem people have understanding design is, is just like having some sort of language or framework with which to understand it. And so that's, that's what I want to open people's eyes to is to understand that design isn't really just random things that some designer just thinks of, that there's really factors that are at play and that as they go throughout their day and observe great design, they can see those at work and learn more about design throughout their day. You mentioned that you're not one of those like quick and dirty tip giving people. And that was actually one of the things that drew me to signing up for this because you specifically called out, hey, I'm not going to turn your conversion rate by 300% or something along those lines. And I was like, oh, this is something that I want to do so I can actually learn because I've signed up for so many things that are like, do this for four weeks and lose 10 pounds or (laughs) do this and make $500. And when you 
don't see yourself on the trajectory to getting to those goals by the end, it's so easy to quit. And that's one of the things that that usually turns me off from signing up on one of those. And when I saw that you specifically called that out, I was like, oh, this is going to be a real learning experience. I want to dive right into this. Yeah, and I guess it's sort of counterintuitive. It seems like something would sell better or do better if you would if you if you make those kind of promises. I don't believe that you can do that with design. I'm at least taking it a step further than than all the people who have said like, "Oh, you just have to be born with it or something." Uh, I'm I'm saying if you if you if you have the patience to just listen and observe and do some critical thinking, that you can have a new understanding of design. I really do believe that. That was actually going to be one of my next questions because I was born with zero artistic ability. And all of my friends that are like great designers or web designers and those type of things, they can draw, they can paint, sculpt. And I always look at that and I get so depressed. I'm like, oh, I can't do any of this artistic stuff. How am I going to do this? So it's, it's nice to hear that you're taking this from the thought of anybody can do this if they just have the patience, the, the willingness to learn and those types of things. And you truly believe that even without an artistic ability, people can pick this stuff up? Yeah, I, I do believe that. I, I'm, you know, honestly, I don't, I'm not sure what to base it off of, you know, <laughs> anybody could do it. But I've had, but there's been great stories. I got an email the other day from a guy who was saying, you know, that he's actually colorblind and has been, had read Design for Hackers and built this bootstrap theme, this theme on top of bootstrap and has made like $3,500 in passive revenue, like selling this, this theme. I checked out his theme. It was really attractive. I, I wish I had the name of it handy with me, but hmm. so, you know, there's people who are learning this stuff, even if they're colorblind, you know? That's awesome. I do want to get into typography just for a little bit. I know Chris will make fun of me for this because he thinks it's, you know, nerdy and that kind of stuff. It's but. not even nerdy. I just, I never had in my life have paid attention to what font certain things are in. I just, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to jump in and for our listeners, if, if they're creating something or, you know, trying to put something together like last minute or even say you're trying to put together something last minute, I mean, probably not what you're going to do, but uh, just for this example, and you have to choose a font that's going to be simple, clean, and you know will look good. What are like two or three of those fonts that you personally would use? Well, I'll think of three kind of different personalities of typefaces and it kind of depends upon the medium let's say that it's on screen and there's special considerations there because screens are made up of pixels it's different from paper and fonts have been designed specifically for screen you know if i want something that has a little bit more of a classic classy feel to it Georgia is a serif typeface that's great. It's hard to beat for screen. And something uh, that has kind of a rational shape to it, uh, something very stale, of course, is uh, Helvetica that has just kind of like a clean informational look to it. I think Arial's also fine for screen. If you're printing out, I would say Helvetica would be really good. And then... um, See or think of something like a little bit more friendly or humanist looking. Uh, Lucida Grand is all right for for those. That's uh, a sans serif, and um, yeah, th- those would be three that you could go with. That would be pretty solid. Those are all on that all the fonts you can you'll ever need PDF as well. I feel like again coming from the space where I, I mean I I can't help but to go back. John was helping me make a pamphlet type thing for this company that I work for because he can do some good design stuff. And so I said, hey, let's try try this. 
And he was like, you don't want to do that. I said, well, why? I mean, I feel like it looks good. And, oh, he went into how you can't use this font here and what it'll do. Have you always been interested in this stuff? Where does it start? Do you just go, you know, I'm interested in fonts and color schemes and how they are used in the interwebs or something? You know, like, how did you come to all this? Yeah, how did I get into it? Uh, basically, since I could hold a pencil, I was obsessed with drawing. I was I always, my entire childhood, I grew up in Nebraska. It was kind of boring. I was in my room all the time drawing. And then it did get to the, get to the point where I would I would start doing some calligraphy or something. I remember it must have been around fourth grade or something. I got a calligraphy set and you know, I was doing some calligraphy. I would draw some letters and logos every once in a while. And then I, you know, really got into more kind of studio art painting sort of things. And then ended up, once I got into college, then that was when I was studying graphic design and started to learn about typography. And that's when I really got fascinated with it because it's just this really amazing art form that is tied to history so much. Like our language, uh, you know, an A looks like an A, but at the same time, the technology and the tools that are made to use to, to create any sort of letter really influence the form of those letters. And that's what makes typography such a fascinating subject for me. I laugh just a little bit because when I was at school, I've always had an interest in design and I mean, it's specifically like computer design, web design, that kind of stuff. But as I went to college, you know, I was like, how am I going to make the money moving forward? I'm going to go to business school, like all that stuff. And now, like I do all this design stuff on the side for fun. Like Chris said, I mean, <laughs> I'm just trying to learn as much as I can. I'm trying to design as much stuff as I can. And now I'm looking at even going back to other classes or school again for it and kind of kicking myself for not really following, oh, I have a huge interest in this. So it always fascinates me when people do go the art route and then stick with it for a long time. Because I know there's a lot of pressures from parents or outside forces where they're saying, hey, you want to make money when you grow up. And then now you look at it, a lot of people are making good money in those areas. And it, a lot of jobs are, are dependent on good looking websites and good looking packaging and, and all that kind of stuff. So I do find it fascinating that now those jobs are, are looked at more seriously than I guess, however many years ago. But it's so funny that you mentioned that too, because when I actually was choosing my major in college, that was a big consideration was that my upbringing is, was pretty fiscally conservative and, and my parents encouraged me to pick something where I could get a job and I was right. really into drawing and painting and stuff and it was like well I can draw and paint and and I can and I can uh, also get a job with this this uh, major and that's how I ended up getting into graphic design uh, and then and then I of course just totally fell in love with typography and design itself. So it's funny, I actually was kind of taking a practical route in that. And fortunately, I was I was supported in, in at least doing that. I do want to ask you some design focused questions here. I mean, who are your inspirations for design? Who do you really look up to? And then as a huge Apple fan, I do have to ask you your thoughts on Johnny Ive as well. I learned a lot of graphic design history in college, and the, the graphic design history is, is just rich with really fascinating characters. One of my favorites is, and this has got to be the main person that I that I look up to, I guess, was Jan Schickold. It's spelled T-S-C-H. It's a, it's a complicated name to, to spell. 
But uh, he was really obsessed with typography and wrote a book called The New Typography, which was really influential. And um, he proposed standards for business documents and for laying out business documents and was really pushing standards to make it easier for businesses throughout Europe to internationally conduct commerce with one another. And it's, it's really fascinating because I see a lot of parallels between that and, and some standardization that you see happening on the web with UI libraries or frameworks right. and, and things like that. And then to answer the second part of the question about Johnny Ive, I mean, I, Apple's products are absolutely wonderful. Uh, they're wonderfully designed, and they're, a, a, I think, an almost perfect expression of technology and, and culture and material. And, and the forms that come through all of that just seem like such sublime and perfect solutions. But it's to the point where... It's to the point where I'm all, I actually am, am trying to cut down on the amount that I talk about Apple because they've become such like the default. Uh, they've become such an, an easy thing to point to as as great design that um, that it's almost lost its meaning in, in a way because they're just so good. Really, the last I guess blemish they have is the what was it the skew skewmorphism or skewmorphism. Oh, yeah where Steve Jobs like really wanted to have the leather from his airplane as like the leather on the calendar and the different stitching from chairs that he had throughout iOS and OSX and that kind of stuff. And I, I find that that's funny that people are focusing on that now and kind of looking at Johnny Ive to be like, all right, we're going to see where he takes this company now for iOS and I could sit here and talk to you about it for hours, but yeah, a lot of people take a lot of offense to the uh, to the skewmorphism that they had in, in a lot of their UIs, and um, you know, I, I I can see both sides of the co the coin on that. I, I'm not a complete flat design advocate, but I definitely see the advantages there. But I I think it's kind of funny to to say you know buttons shouldn't look like buttons. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, a photograph is a skewmorph of the objects that are in the photograph, kind right. of. So, <laughs> right. Who decides what these design standards are? Is it just really the the vote of the people? Because I'm sure that if you put a certain number of people in the room, you're going to have the same thing where it's 50% of the people are going to like it, 50% of the people are going to hate it. I mean, I think things like Bootstrap, you know, uh, the the guys who were they were formerly i guess at, at twitter they they built that and a lot of the the aesthetics that come out of say something like that uh a lot of it is you know what can we do with css3 and make the production of these graphics really scalable and and gotcha. dynamic and what sort of tools can we use to like not have to go into photoshop every time we make a button and things like that those things can influence form a lot and i think that's a lot that's a little bit of what's behind the flat design thing, I think, actually, is that it, if, you're, if you're not having a lot of fancy stuff all over your graphics, it, it, it does make it production faster. But then that makes it so that uh, you just have to have all the more sensitivity to typography and white space and the alignment of things and, and the subtle spacing of things to communicate what you're trying to say. And I know I keep bringing this back to, I guess, phone OSs and stuff, but it's one of the things that I pay attention to. But that always reminds me of Windows Phone and their flat design, but it's kind of boring. And then now that Apple's moving to a flat design and trying to see what they do to see how they can make it stand out. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the Windows Phone interface, they just like took the flat design to an extreme. And I, I think ultimately we'll, we'll be at some sort of happy medium right? where like, yeah, okay, maybe your notebook shouldn't look like a notebook, 
but also to have buttons not look like buttons completely might be taking the, the philosophy too far. So it'll, it'll be interesting. We'll see. I, I think that, that when, whenever there's any sort of trends visually in design, there's usually an opposite reaction, right? Like, yeah. there, like there's punk rock as a reaction to things like Billy Joel or glam rock or, or whatever. It was just like, let's just get some guitars and bang on them and play a few chords and, and yell and stuff. So not to say that that's all punk rock is, but there's always reactions to prevailing movements. So, and then some sort of a correction or a compromise in between. Well, I'd like to think that design and rock are on the same levels, especially an in interest yeah. in my mind. But, you know, there's going to be people that laugh at us about that. But, oh, well, what can you do? David, again, thank you so much for being on the show. I don't want to take up too much of your time here. And your book, Design for Hackers, Reverse Engineering Beauty, is fantastic. You've got Summer of Design out there where you're sending out a weekly newsletter now. And like you said, I guess people can sign up to be waitlisted. Is yeah, basically be, be waitlisted. I'm getting a ton of emails from people saying, like, hey, can I put you on? And, and I, I'm at the point where... Like I, if, if, if somebody writes me one of those, one of those emails, I, I, can't, I can't respond to all of them. There's, there's too many of them. But uh, I do hope to – maybe there won't necessarily be next summer that they have to wait, but I do hope to have the same sort of course available at some time in the future. And if they do sign up uh, on my list at designforhackers.com, there, are, there is content that I have that's exclusive to that list that they'll be receiving anyway. Oh, nice. So designforhackers.com, is there anywhere else on the web that our listeners can find you and find out more about you? Yeah, I'm at Twitter. At, uh, my Twitter is at Kadavy, K-A-D-A-V-Y, and I'm very active there. And then I also have a blog at Kadavy.net, which I, I write a post every maybe every month or a couple months there. I try to keep it really quality. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show and best of luck with Summer Design. Great. Thank you so much for having me. That was David Cadavy's interview about design and his Summer of Design course. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Please make sure you head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com. We've got a bunch of ways that you can support the show over there. We have a donate button. You can buy us a drink. Also, don't forget that you can click on the Amazon banner at the top of the page. Really, I would just go set up your website and use Squarespace. That's really the best thing to do for everybody. Why don't you have a website yet? Get that up and running. Welcome to the new millennium. But thanks for joining smartpeoplepodcast.com. Keeping this coming at you every week. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.